this is my story. Before all of the wins in my portfolio, I was a little boy diagnosed with polio. Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. My co-writer, author, and friend, Mr. Pat Piccarelli is here. Good evening, everybody. And we have a very special guest. We do. Talking about a very special man in my life. And now that same gentleman that Pat's been writing about, we're going to get some more inside scoop from Ron. And I'm going to have Pat introduce him formally. Okay, tonight we are very fortunate to have with us uh, uh, Ronald Freed. He wrote a book about uh, Frank Costello. Uh, and this is fiction. This is a novel. Uh, this is not done often in the, in the writing world where you take a real character, turn him into a fictional character or, or, or look, look at the story from a fiction point of view. Uh, I just started uh, uh, Bron's book. It is very good, very well, well written. So without any further delay, uh, let me introduce you to Ron Freed. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, could you tell the, the audience uh, first before we start who you are, what you do or what you've done? What, what I've done. Uh, time for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of time, so take all it. Right. <laughs> Give it to us all. Then it was 1971. And I, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, uh, uh, so I, um, I grew up on Long Island. I uh, went to Columbia. I majored in English. Um, I always um, was doing writing. I, I sort of stumbled into the TV business. I went to work for the Dick Cavett show on PBS. And oh, I wow. Yeah, and I ended up producing uh, many of Dick's shows. I and I continued to work for him in various iterations of the show for many years. I produced his CNBC show for three years. I did a special with Gore, Vidal, and Dick. Um, and I continued working in television um, and writing at the same time. Uh, so it was sort of two careers at once. Um, my first book was a history of old-time boxing trainers. Um, you know, from like the, 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 from the teens through about the Ali era. Um, so I was able to talk to Angelo Dundee and then the people who taught Angelo Dundee uh, how to be a great boxing trainer. And then I also, uh, I, I wrote about a lot of the um, trainers who, who were gone, who were dead at that time. Uh, and, you know, it was very cool. I got to meet and interview a lot of people who knew Joe Lewis, things like that. Um, so I sort of always been interested in that era of the 20s, 30s. That's funny because you know, are you writing a book about Costello? Costello was an avid boxing fan. I know, I know, I know. He went to the garden pictures. all the time, and he had an extra ticket. He said, Come on, can we go on the real fights? Right. I was reading about how he bet that Floyd Patterson was going to win one of his rematches. Um, not Floyd Patterson, Sugar Ray Robinson. Um, so he bet on the fights too, right, Johnny? Oh my God, yeah. And, and guess one of the guys who was, uh, I mean, we can talk about it now. One of the guys that, you know, always denounced the mafia and, oh. and you know, and they had enough information on them and stuff that he didn't want out there was Jay Gahoover. And Jay, yeah. and Jay Gahoover bet personally with Frank. Yes. I, I, I put that in my book. I said that um, he, he didn't want to be seen placing big bets. So Costello would give him the tip, and then he would send um, uh, Hoover would send his people, which was say FBI agents, to place bets at the track because you know Hoover didn't want to be seen. <laughs> and I think at one point Costello said, "I think I spent half my life fixing fixing races for uh, for J. Edgar Hoover." Um, <laughs> no, he there's was a story. I don't know if it's true or not that they, you know, because Costello, of course, was at the um, the Waldorf uh, almost every morning. Yeah, I was there. Oh, I bet you were. Peacock you. Alley. <laughs> and um, and he would write, he ran to Hoover once, and supposedly Hoover said, You stay in your lane and I'll stay in mine. Um, I don't know how true that is, but he, you know, Costello bragged about meeting with him, meeting him in Central Park, et cetera. So uh yeah, I I, I do believe that. Well, Costello didn't want to prosecute the mob, right? He he um he was interested in going after communists or what he called subversive, but he oh, was, Diego Hoover. Hoover didn't want to Hoover, yeah, excuse me. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yeah. Costello never won the book. <laughs> no, Costello was very uninterested in prosecuting the <laughs> So what made you uh write a novel about Frank Costello? Did you always have an interest in the mob or just him? No, well, a couple of things. So I had I read um after the, the nonfiction boxing book, I wrote a 
I wrote a, a novel about boxing and then I wrote another novel, which was sort of set in Paris. And so, you know, it was completely different. And then um, two things. One was that I, I have a friend who's a, a criminal defense attorney and he had done many uh, mob cases. And so, you know, it was hard to get him to talk about it in any detail, but I sort of sort of got an interest in what he was doing. He's, he's one of my oldest and best friends. And then, um, but he would come to town sometimes and, and he would say, he would have a client or, or, or an associate and I would meet, join them for dinner. So I got to spend a certain amount of time with these people who were connected for lack of a better phrase. I think they were mostly uh, bookies. Um, and and uh, some of them were really interesting and really charming guys. One or two of them were sort of scary guys. Um, but, um, and it, it was, it, I was fascinated with them because they were so different than I was, you know, I just, this, this guy. Who, who, and this who all was, happened in Long Island or in New York City? No, New York. I moved to the city, you know, and oh, okay. I, I, I've right. lived here. I lived in Manhattan, uh, since I got out of school and, um, yeah. So, you know, dinner at Rayo's or these other places. And then, um, at the same time, I got a job, a, a TV job, um, I, uh, as a writer and a producer on the show called The Making of the Mob, which was on AMC. And, and that's, that was the history of the mob. So I got to learn all about the history of, of how, it would, of how the, the modern day um, mob was formed, how the five families were created. Right. And um, I learned a lot. And then I also, in addition to being one of the writers on it, um, uh, I, I did the interviews. So I got to interview historians and a few wise guys. Um, so, I, I had a, I felt I had a feeling for the milieu, and I certainly knew the history of you know Lucky Luciano, of Mike Lansky, Frank Costello, et cetera, et cetera. And, who, who were the mobsters you interviewed? Uh, um, let's say I interviewed Frank Collada. Um, oh, Frank Collada! Oh my God, Jesus! I know, I know. I have to say, How wacko he is. I, I, I have to awesome. say, like, I was talking to this guy, and I thought this is the worst person I've ever spoken to in my life. <laughs> and I always joke and say, and I, I've met William Morris agents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you like that one. Good. You know, and I really, Oh, he made my blood crawl. On the other hand, I interviewed some other guys and, you know, I interviewed the guy who prosecuted uh, the case, um, the Goodfellas case. And he was the guy who he flipped Hill, right? This was the prosecutor. And he said that he had spent hours listening to tapes of gangsters. And he said, well, one of his ideas was that the most charming ones, the ones who tell the best stories, who were the most fun to hang out, were the ones who rose in the mob. Now, you would know better than I do, but what, what do you think of that? I, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. I thought, but oh, funny, I, I, had a, I had a personal story with Frank Collada. Oh. When they, uh, Tony Spilatro and them showed up in my club, State Street, yeah, I would never let him in. Yeah, and they really had infamy. So what I did at six o'clock in the morning most times, and the sun was coming up in the desert. There was a pizza place that was open twenty four hours a day. So I'd take a bunch of people, and it was on Maryland Parkway, right, not too far from my club. And I had these fabulous cars. And this one particular night, I had a Coco Rolls Royce, and I didn't park in you know, vertical like they do in front of stores. I parked it in the middle of the uh, shopping mall. Nobody was there. And we'd have to walk to it. And I had a guy, Ralphie, that I took out of Gene Prison and went to a culinary school. And he, he, wow. he and I made him a houseboy. He lived in one of my apartments. And we're walking. Why I'm telling the story. We're walking, he's walking me to the car. He's coming home with me because he lives in, in, in the apartment down the hall from me. And Frank Collada comes flying down to run me over and shoot at me. Huh. And Ralphie said to me, for what you did to me, I'll take a bullet for you. And I said, hopefully you don't have to do that. This guy, Ralphie, throws me to the ground, takes three shots from Collada, gets killed. Collada flies away. In the car, please show. You know, it was a good shootout. <laughs> Everybody was there in five minutes, yeah. and and it's, it's so funny because we, you and I are talking about Costello right now, huh. and they come to me and they said, "Did you see the shoot?" I said, "No." 
it's something similar to the, you know, Chin Junior Costello. He said no, and I didn't even put the two together until you just meant Collada. I, I, I told you that story, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, well, he, uh, he was didn't he 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 uh, he turned on on Spilatra, right? That was oh the, yeah. Oh my God, did he ever flip? Yeah, Jesus. And he had killed, I think, nine people. Uh, but they let him out of jail, and he's sitting there talking to me. That was uh, I know. I can't believe it. Well, it's you know it's the same thing with you know and uh, the, the other guy. I mean, it, it, I can't believe this guy, Sammy the Bull. He goes in the witness protection program, goes to Arizona, and he starts a, a drug ring with his kids. They all go to jail. The state prosecutor him. The federal government says you can't do it. He's what are you talking about? I'm the governor of the state. This guy's killing students in our school, overdosing. And that's how that all fell apart. And now he's got a talk show. And he's killed 23 people. I can't believe this. It's welcome to America. Yeah, social media. Yeah. It's amazing. So, uh, uh, Rob, what, what, what made you do this as a work of fiction rather than nonfiction? Um, well, when I was working on the, um, on the TV series, the thing that struck me, I, Costello seemed like the most interesting character of all these guys. I thought, I mean, Lansky, I thought was a very interesting guy. Um, Luciano, I thought perhaps less so, but Costello was really interested in me. He was interesting to me because he was on the one, I couldn't believe how politically powerful he was. I mean, he was- Oh my God, yeah. Factor rule of Tammany Hall. On the other hand, he was the acting head of the Genovese crime family. And, you know, so he had to balance these two, two worlds. And that seemed interesting to me. And I became particularly interested in the Keefe overhearings because all of the other guys, right, they took the fifth. They weren't going to say anything. But Costello says, well, I talked to, you know, he has a, Costello has a fundraiser for the Salvation Army. He's judges, he's got congressmen, he's got, you know, Tammany Hall chiefs. They're having drinks and paying a hundred bucks a head. And, you know, there's, there's, um, Vito Genovese sitting at the, at, you know, at the head of the table. Yeah. So um, it was the two worlds coming together. Um, and, and I thought, well, why did he testify? And, and, and that seemed really interesting to me um, because he was trying to reconcile those two worlds. But I think that he made a, the, the mistake, if, if you don't mind my saying it, of thinking that he was because he, he had a legitimate side and he wanted to be a legitimate person that these congressmen who are on this brand new thing that nobody understood called television and getting this publicity, were going to talk to him man to man, you know, a man of power to a man of power. And what, what he found was that they really wanted to uh, embarrass and humiliate him. And, and they did. Oh, yeah. Um, they did. Do you think that he regretted uh, that decision? Did he ever talk to you about that? You know, he one thing about with me, he never talked to anything about that. It was so funny. His, his whole private life, what he did and didn't do, and um, that's not who we were. And that's and, and um, numerous times I would start to say something. He said, let me tell you something. I'm not going to talk about that. I said, why? He said, because you'd be incriminated. And I wouldn't do that to you. I mean, the, the second meeting I had with him, which I thought was very impressed that he wanted to let me know why he got into this world. Huh. And he took a, an ad out of his pocket when they were building the dam in Central Park. Uh -huh. And it was a want ad for laborers. And the WAPs were below the blacks, below yeah. the Mexicans, yeah. less pay, doing yes. the same job. Yeah, his father had done that. His father had dug ditches in Westchester. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. But my, my uncle sent his father and mother to America, Angelo Russo, out of Sicily. Uh, That's how he, when he asked my name, as after months of coming by and, you know, just giving me money, he never took a ballpoint pen in front of the Sherry Netherlands. He used to come every morning. He'd walk down from the west side, get his shoe shine, and then go over to to uh, the Waldorf or wherever else he was going to go first, but yeah. he always wound up in the Waldorf. But that he wanted to let me know that's how he got involved mm. to mm. do good, and um, yeah. that was his whole mission, I guess. So he showed you he was showing you that ad to say uh, this is where we started from, and I wasn't going to take it, 
And this is the path I, I chose. And that's it. He's like, I, I felt I had to do something. And they already sent, Sicily already sent Carlo Gambino over. And Carlo was a made guy. They came over to get rid of the Moderano family. Because when they found out they came over, they were shaking down the Italian immigrants for, for, for money and, and protection. And that's when they created the five families. They thought they needed a committee, which, you know, I thought, you know, I, again, it's the way he wanted it for me to know it. And he, he named me the kid. He never wanted anybody to know my name. He actually protected me. Huh. Well, he didn't have a son. Do you think he, re- he didn't have any children? Do you think he regretted that? I, I think I think that had a lot to do with it. And he loved the fact once he found out, you know, then he did some history, how I got out of the hospital yeah, and, yeah. I, and I killed the, the attendant that was a, a pedophile, basically. And I was 12. So him and Carlo Gambino used to say the apple didn't fall far from the tree because I didn't know my uncle was a major killer in Sicily. And I hung him in 1948. Uh-huh. So all those elements. But I wasn't questioning it because every time that guy shook my hand, he had on an old bill in it. And this is huh. in the 50s, so, you know. Yeah. And I, did, here did, I am did, in his apartment, yeah. Did you ever meet his wife? No. That's, what, that's one of the things. He, he That was very private to him. And never, you know, she had my number. She's called me sometimes. Oh, yeah. And, and I, we just had a conversation, Pat and I, reminiscing even the, his funeral. Because I, I wasn't, I couldn't go because it was they were looking for me in New York, and I was in the grammar school across the street. <clears throat> oh, yeah, uh, across the street from Frankie Campbell. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so yeah. I was, I was there. Only the reason I went because I wanted to let her know I did come to pay my respects. Yeah. So I had to see her to see what she was wearing. Yeah. And I called her because I had the number. Oh. And, said, and she said, "I felt your presence there. It's so funny." I knew you had to be there because you know my you know my husband so much. I said, yeah, and I said your outfit. And I described your outfit, and she couldn't believe it. Huh, L- Loretta Geigerman. She he married a Jewish woman. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and her her brother was involved, right, in, in New Orleans. Yeah, I and mean, that's why that's well, her brother was with Marcellos. Yeah. yeah. And that that gave them credibility with him with Costello. Right, and, but 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 then I think the brother um, also ran the the uh, Frank's gambling operations down there. Oh yeah, the down there. Oh no, he did. Oh no, yeah, yeah, he yeah. didn't. And what's the name? Ran it in, in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever go to the casino that he um, that he ran outside of New Orleans? It sounded very very. Oh risky. yeah, no, I was. Well, you know, I my life basically in, in the late, I would say. In the fifties, late fifties, after that, I was just a messenger. That's when they were trying to get, you know, because of Joe Kennedy asking them to get his son to become president. Right. That's all I was doing. So I met everybody, every mobster in New York and the world, because I was traveling around giving envelopes. He never knew what I was, and the guy was so smart, as you as you probably know by now. Mm-hmm. When I went to Chicago. Mm-hmm. I met Sidney Koshak. Oh. And that's where they picked me up from the airport. And Frank, when I found out later on who Frankie Ballesteri was, he picked me up from the airport and brought me to the bomber house. Uh-huh. I sat down. I was like 16, 17 years old. Uh-huh. And he said, you have an envelope for me? I said, yeah. And I gave him the envelope. I didn't even know what was in it. I did that all the time. He opened it up, and he said, sign here. I signed it, and he gave me a copy, and he signed it. And there was like ten or 15000 in it. He took it. He said, now I could talk to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, now you just retain me as your lawyer. We have client privileges. I mean, this is how this guy thought. Costello was so smart, man. Yeah, well, you Sid, know better Sid, than me. Yeah, well, Sidney Rorschach, I mean, he, he has a, a friend of mine is reading his book. He said it's really good. Um, I'm all through it. Oh, yeah, the, the, yeah. Oh, the, the, the outfit? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Gus Russo wrote that, didn't he? Yeah, but I think Rorschach wrote a book. The, the, um, the outfit's different. Oh. Uh, I think Rorschach, the attorney, wrote a book or something, wrote, wrote a book about him. Um, yeah. Oh, his brother. Wasn't it his brother wrote a book about him? There's a couple of books out there. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, could be. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, so, um, 
I have another question. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I, I uh, produce a lot of talk shows, so I'm, uh, uh, I'll answer questions, but I have, I have a few, if that's okay. Oh, whatever you want. <laughs> this is interesting. We came on to question you, your question to me. Okay. Uh, well, you know, old habits die, you know, die fast. Um, um, of course, I forgot the question. <laughs> well, that, that happens a lot. <laughs> um, you're telling me. I'll think of it, you know, like tomorrow. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, call me back. <laughs> <laughs> so look, let's get let's get back to your to your novel. Oh yeah, uh, thank this you. This is uh, for people who are just listening to this for the first time. They're thinking. A uh, typical gangster uh, uh, story, and it's not. This is very introspective. Yeah, coming from uh, uh, Frank's innermost thoughts. Well, yeah. Where, where yeah, you're looking at it from a whole different point of view, and makes it. I, I just, I just started because you just sent it to me. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, uh, it's it's really really interesting. I mean, okay. you get into his head. Yeah, I'm assuming, and it sounds like you know I've I've written uh, two books with uh, with Gianni. And uh, Costello plays a major portion role uh, in each one of them, and I'm saying this this has to be how Frank Costello thought, yeah. Based on what I know about him, which is yeah. a lot less than Gianni, but it seems like you got right into his head. Well, um, you know, I think I mentioned this uh, when we spoke on the phone. So um, there were two like serious literary novels written about the mob. This one called Billy Bathgate by E.L. Doctorow. It's yeah. about a young man. Uh, not unlike your involvement with Costello, about a young man who gets involved with Dutch Schultz's gang. And so the story is, he tells the story, he narrates it, right? Uh, but so it's, so sort of the, the gangster, the mobster, in this case, a very scary one, is, is, is out there, right? And it's, it, it's, it's the young man describing his experience with him. Uh, there's another really good one called Legs uh, by William Kennedy, uh, about Legs Diamond, and that's narrated by the, the attorney, right? So it, once again, the, the gangsters out there. So I thought, well, if I'm going to try to write a serious book, uh, and it would be easy for me to write it that way, you know, I, I you know, I, I pretend that I was you, let's say, and I, but I thought, why don't I try to make the Costello the narrator, you know, and, and, and look at it from his point of view? Because what I was trying to get at was what went into this decision to testify in front of the Kefauver hearings. That's how it ended. So it, there's sort of, there's an epilogue, but it, but it ends with, um, you know, the, the famous moment where he's embarrassed, where this sort of, um, you know, show, uh, showboat of a, of a New England attorney says, um, uh, Mr. Costello, what have you ever done to help your country? And, um, and then Costello says, I paid my tax. And then they laugh at him. And I thought, it must have been horrible for him. I mean, he was such a powerful man. He was a very, very proud man. Oh my and God! These, and these people are laughing at him. And he was he and, and and in a way, it was because he had miscalculated. If he'd just taken the fifth, and not only was he, it might not have probably would have happened. And not only was he humiliated, but it was on television. This brand new thing called television. And it was a complete sensation in New York. So that well, they only the heard his voice and shot his hands, though. Yeah, they, but this video. They have a sort of space. There's newsreel of it. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. was there? Yeah. So there's tele the television. He only he only they only shot his very nervous hands. It became known as the hand ballet. But there's newsreel of it, so you can actually you can actually see it online. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what's the uh, uh, what's the wasn't he interviewed uh, on camera and the uh, I don't know if it was the tax question or not. But there was a point where he said, from now on, you have to just shoot my hands. Um, what it was, was that he and his attorney, Wolf, George Wolf, right. um, they made the decision going in. So the, the hearing starts. Right. And and um, George Wolf, George Wolf makes the request that they not show Costello's face. Oh, so he didn't he, he didn't testify on camera at all. His face. No. Not on television. Not okay. on television. Not on television, but the newsreels, the newsreels, which were also taken. So if you look at the the, the photos of that um, of the hearing room, it's very small, it's very crowded. I don't know who the hell all those people were. And the congressmen are all up here, the senators rather, and 
it's like he's on trial. And they're saying, oh, you're not on trial. And Kofiever says, I don't, says, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Well, he was there to embarrass everybody. And um, it's very hot. And there were these, you know, this is years ago, right? So the, the lights on him were really hot and he's sweating and he's nervous, obviously. Um, and it, it's a terrible situation. There are two sets of cameras. So there's newsreel cameras and there's uh, the video uh, video cameras. And it, it, it was seen live nationwide. And yeah, it was uh, a live a live feed go right out. Right, but 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 then the newsreels were shown in in movie theaters, or the TV was was projected on the screen, so that people would rather watch the hearings than um, than watch the feature film. It was just, it really was a sensation. Bomb Hotel on Fifty Seventh Street, where Trump Tower is now, stayed open late, so because women were staying home to shop, uh, uh, staying home to watch this rather than to. Um, rather than to, um, you know, go shopping at Bombatello. So they had to stay open late to, to, to keep going. Um, so, and, and what was, what I found was, I'm trying to think, well, why did he make that decision? Why did he do that? And what I found is that he loved to, to talk about himself. He loved to testify. Um, there, you know, um, there's a moment um, early on in the book. And oh, let me just mention one thing about the book. So the idea about the book was, that everything that Frank Costello says in public at the Kefover hearings, um, at, at trials, um, and in these interviews that he gave um, to, to journalists was all, it's all words that he actually said. So everything that he says in public were his own words. Uh, his thoughts in private, what he was thinking when all this was going on, what he might have said to his wife, what he said to uh, his mistress who lived across Central Park from him. He lived on Central Park West. There was a woman named Thelma Martin um, who lived across the way on Fifth Avenue, who was his mistress, who his wife, Loretta, sort of knew about. Um, That's and, funny that you mentioned that because we wrote that. Pat wrote about this in his book. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I didn't know what you just said. I didn't. I assumed that he had somebody, but I just envisioned him with a certain type of woman where he, he could go there and be t totally open and relaxed. Yeah. Didn't have to talk about business and they yeah. just enjoyed each other. That was my character. I did something uh, similar to you. We just, uh, Johnny and I just wrote a novel, uh -huh. Johnny being the, the protagonist. Uh -huh. And we, we prominently featured uh, Costello both uh -huh. when he was alive. And then as the book goes on, he's already passed away. Was his yeah. 14 years in, uh, in in the future when the book starts to progress. But uh, yeah. yeah, we had the, the same thing. He had, in fact, I had this woman uh, living on uh, on uh, West 57th Street. Uh, she was address in the, in the 60s, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. She lived on, literally across the park. So he lived on Central Park West in 72nd yeah, Street. Street. Yeah, 72nd Street, yeah. She lived right across the park. It was very convenient. And it, it, I read that at one point, um, uh, he, he was at the, uh, the Majestic, which is a beautiful apartment building in New York. He lived on the 18th floor. And um, it was going co-op or a condo, I guess, or co-op, one of the two. And um, uh, it was like, I think it was in the 40s. And um, Costello didn't want to buy it. He wanted to continue to pay rent. But his wife wanted to uh, wanted him to buy it. And I think it was 32 grand for this you know, great big Central Park View apartment. And um, his wife said... Well, I know how much money you're spending on your mistress to cross the way, so you can definitely afford <laughs> this. <laughs> so I'm sure it was an excellent investment, right? It's an excellent investment. Um, I, I know what I wanted to ask Gianni. Um, so, uh, a psychiatrist. There are stories that he saw a psychiatrist. There's a report in the New York Times that Costello consulted some a psychiatrist like Tony Soprano later, right? I think that's where they took it from. And um, it was reported in the Times. And then in George Wolfe's, his attorney's memoir, right? He says that the, um, the psychiatrist's name was Richard Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N-N, -N, Hoffman. And there is a moment where at the Salvation Army um, fundraiser that Costello has, um, Hoffman is there and he says to and he sort of says, he describes the relationship. He says that, that he's Costello's doctor, which means that he was Costello's shrink. So I was wondering if if you knew anything about that, Johnny. Nothing about that. Nope. Uh, uh, uh. No. You know, my relationship with him, basically, I was a glorified messenger. And then 
you know, he, he, he wanted me to know nothing. That's smart. Yeah. And, and even, you know, when I used to bring the envelopes to Carmine at night, uh-huh. there was, there was like four major spots that yeah. we dropped off envelopes and picked up envelopes uh-huh. and um, I, they were sealed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he just, he was very protective. Yeah. He had, he had, he had a mission for me and not, then I realized what it was later on in life and it worked. But I, I think like you think, and I thought that for the longest time, maybe just to glorify my relationship, I was the son he wanted to have. Yeah. 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 You know, you gave me money to go shopping and, you know, I, I was like, I mean, he taught me so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we uh, uh, leave it at that now to go to a commercial, Johnny. All right, we'll be right back. And don't go anywhere. We know where you live, please. We are pleased to announce the publication of a new book series from Gianni Russo and Patrick Piccarelli entitled The Sixth Family. When the alleged daughter of Marilyn Monroe asks for help, Gianni Russo becomes entangled in a web of lies and violence in the search for the late actress's diary. Soon, he is enmeshed in a mystery that involves a presidential candidate, a disgruntled Mafia Copo, a retired NYPD detective, and the past of Mafia boss Frank Costello. Russo must race against the clock to stop a hostile reorganization of the American Mafia while trying to stay one step ahead of a faceless killer. While listening to this book, skillfully read by Gianni himself, the listener will have to determine what is true and what is fiction. Or as Gianni says before this epic story begins, this book is a work of fiction, except for the parts that are true. Look out for the second installment of this exciting new series coming in 2023. The Sixth Family. Book One is available now on Amazon.com. I we're back. Uh, um, you yeah, left a commercial break, huh? <laughs> no, I'm laughing that, that that line we know where you live because um, <laughs> so I once I once had dinner with these guys. They were they were these bookies, and they were they were sort of they were Jewish bookies. They were mob connected, and they were actually very entertaining and and, and funny. A little bit scary, and uh, one day they. Um, they drove me home, and uh, <laughs> all these parking tickets in in, in the car. And he goes, I don't pay any parking tickets. Right now. They're sort of typical, and um, and there's a copy of um, of one of these books about the the Blachi papers in the back. In the back. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> he's going, that's a good book. That book got it right. Yeah, Peter um, So then he drops me off, and the last thing he said to me is, "Now we know where you live." <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, getting back, you asked me. Um, um, I guess, I guess we talked about that already. Like, like, uh, why do they have a narrator? But one of the things that I thought I could pull off that voice, that narrator's voice, was um, that I had met all these gangsters. But also, when I did the boxing book, I had interviewed a lot of uh, tough guys who became boxers or boxing trainers who grew up in New York, who were born about the same time Frank Costello was born. So I, I, I kind of understood how they talked. Um, one of the guys was this guy, Frank Costello, uh, big part Frank Costello, um, um, Ray Arcel, who had trained um, I had 12 fighters who lost to Joe Lewis. He trained Benny Leonard. And then he trained uh, later, he, tra- he trained Roberto Duran. Um, wow. And but he, you know, he knew Gene Tunney, he knew Jack Dempsey. And he grew up in Harlem at the same time that uh, Frank Costello did, but he was in the Jewish section. Yeah. Um, so, but he, you know, and I talk, I spent a lot of time talking to him. So when um, one of the the figures in my book is um, is Meyer Lansky, um, so I kind of knew how um, older, tough, streetwise Jewish men of that generation sounded. Oh my so God! I, yeah. yeah. So I think I I had a lot of fun writing. Um, Writing a Meyer Lansky. Um, my Maya became a very close friend of mine. Oh yeah, for the strangest reasons. But uh, again, because um, you know, well, I don't want to mention the guy's name. He's still alive. But uh, 
Sinatra, who was fit, uh, appearing at the Bomb Blue, uh -huh. Maya promised this gentleman that his son will be at his Bomb Mitzvah. Frank will come. So now I'm living at the Palm Blue under the name of Dr. J. Adams because I knew all the Jewish girls wanted their, their you know, their, their parents wanted them to marry a doctor. So I'd have myself paged every day at the pool, paging Dr. J. Adams, and I'd get to the phone and nobody was there. It was just, and I met a lot of women that way. But the reason I, so now he calls me and he said, Johnny, I said, yes. He said, Francis is not at Alvin's house. I said, he's supposed to be. He said, well, if you're supposed to be, I wouldn't be calling you. So I went up to the suite, double door suite at the end of the hall, and I knock on the door, and nobody's answering. I knock on the door, and I hear somebody breathing right on the other side of the door. And it was, you know, he married, the, what the hell was her name? The, Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow. She was holding on to the door, and lied to him and said they, they called off the bar mitzvah. <laughs> so I knock on the door and I hear her, not know it was her. I said, who's ever near the door, get away, I'm coming in. Because I could do anything I want, they're here and say nothing to me. So I back up maybe six, seven feet, and I shouldered the door, it was a double door. And she went flying, he comes out with his typical white silk rose on, robe on, he said, what's going on? I said, Frank, you're supposed to be across the creek. He said, she told me it was canceled. I said, you don't cancel a bar mitzvah. <laughs> and he was down there in 10 minutes because wow. he was shaved and I mean, he put his clothes and he went over out of respect. Wow. So, Mia Farrow weighs about 97 pounds, I think. Oh, not only that, when he got married to her, he, I'm, I'm on 61st Street. He bought the townhouse four doors up. It was the most nightmare to me because every time he had a fight with it, come down here. And I said, oh, no, please. <laughs> that only lasted, I think, a year. And then. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So your, your writing process, yeah. what's it like? Oh, well, um, this was different, right? Because the other novels I'd written sort of pulled from my life or my imagination right yeah. and which this one was to some extent but um the first thing i did i had the summer off uh from my tv gig i i spent the summer reading you know reading everything i could find about frank costello oh, and, wow. uh, and um and you know taking notes and um then um you know then i I, I was doing other things. And then the next summer, I I made a timeline. So it was four pages long, single space. So I knew where Costello was. And, and I knew that I would get it in, in proper order. Because in the novel... Well, chronologically, you wanted it. Yeah. I just wanted to understand that I was going to play games with that. But I wanted to know what, what the real story was. So, um, because the novel starts... Um, when he, he first starts to get his name in the paper a lot because of this scandal with Aurelio. Aurelio was this magistrate who um, he uh, who, who Costello had engineered uh, his his appointment uh, at to, uh, for the Supreme Court of the State of New York. And, yeah, through Tammany Hall. Yeah, so he had the Republican and um, and Democratic nomination, and um, so um, but Costello's phone was being tapped for a whole thing, which I explained the reason why. Um, uh, Costello's phone is being tapped by Frank Hogan. So when Aurelio calls him up and says, I just want to thank you, Frank. Um, and, and, you know, I will be loyal to you. And my, my loyalty is unending. And he said, and Costello says, when I tell you something's in the bag, it's in the bag. And that's because he, you know, he controlled Tammany Hall. Yep. He could appoint judges, which was amazing to me. And so that gets in. So Frank Costello, there's no crime in that, right? There's no crime in that conversation. And so uh, Frank Hogan's office, the district attorney, leaked it um, to the papers, and it was it was on the front page of the New York Times. This is during the Second World War, but this is big news that this guy who's going to be nominated to Supreme Court is talking to this gangster Frank Costello. So um, so then they contact Aurelio, and Aurelio says. 
I had no idea who he was, you know. I, I had no idea. <laughs> you know, and Costello, you know, sort of thinks, okay, well, he's the only person in the world who doesn't know who I am. The only person who knows who <laughs> So, um, so then there's a hearing. They're trying to disbar Aurelio. So uh, Costello goes to testify, and in my novel, he goes to testify. And um, and this is all in the novel. This is yeah, you, yeah. You orchestrated it, okay? Yeah, and and then the um, so I used transcript of what he said at the novel, and he, you know, he sort of can't help himself. You know, he's they ask him, do you know, do you know all these people, like, you know, Al Capone, do you know, so-and-so, do you, and he goes, yeah, I know them, I know them, they're, they're associates, you know, of, of mine. They asked him, do you know Johnny Torrio, Johnny Torrio, who, yeah, um, yeah Chicago, know, very famous guy from Chicago, who had started in New York, and then, then worked with, with Capone, actually brought Capone to Chicago, so he, um, no, I don't know Johnny Torrio, which is ridiculous, because they, they had worked together during Prohibition, and then, but then he goes, I want to make something clear to you. I also know a lot of legitimate people, but I don't want to mention their names. So he's sort of bragging and making, and making it clear that he's, that he's living in these two worlds. So then he sits down and he says, and his lawyer says, you love it, don't you? He says, what? You love to testify. And in a way, that was his fatal flaw because, and if you go on, so then later on, they can't really get him on the, the Aurelio thing. Uh, so... Um, they and, and they do what prosecutors do, which is they can't get you, they smear you, right? They, they, they smear you on the press, right? So they, not that this, you know, not that Frank Costello was an angel by any means. So they, they put out the story that he's the head of, um, he's the head of, um, he's importing drugs into, uh, into, into America, that he's the kingpin. And this is very offensive to Costello because Costello, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. prided himself in saying that he wasn't a dope dealer. So, he he wants to sue, right? He wants to sue, but he he really is in no position to sue, right? Okay. So he um he has a press conference, and I, I I thought, oh my God, the 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 head of the Genovese crime family is having a a, a press conference. This is this is a little wacky because we know that if you're a gangster, you want to stay away from the press, right? Um, yeah. You know, Al Capone would talk to the press too, and you know that did not end well, and. Yeah. and it, in my novel, his wife is always like, "Don't do it. You're going to end up like Al in Alcatraz, like Al like Al Capone." Is. I'm not going to end up in Alcatraz. But then, so then he has this press conference at his lawyer's office, and I found the transcript. So the whole back and forth that's in the novel of things he actually said. But he's asked all these questions that he really can't testify. So that you know, they say, "Were you the um, the slot king uh, uh, kingpin of New York City?" Oh, I prefer not to say. <laughs> and he says, this mafia, I don't know, I don't know what it is, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is. And then all these questions that he can't answer. So um, it doesn't go very well. Um, but this pattern of wanting to establish that he's, um, that he's legitimate, it continues uh, on and on so that he's, he gives a, a very long and really interesting interview to Bob Considine, um, of which is syndicated. I think there were. Yeah, it comes. Yeah, the columnist yeah. syndicator all over the country, and he's, you know, he's he's saying, yeah, I was a bootlegger, um, but you know, I didn't do drugs, and he's denying that there's a mafia, and so he 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 really can't withstand the scrutiny because there are a lot of things this guy just cannot talk about. He might be self-incriminating, or he he's not going to incriminate other people, so he he's always so put himself in this position, and then the keep over hearings. Come along and he, and he does it again. He, he gave other interviews. He was he was interviewing Time Magazine. He was on the cover of Time Magazine. Why do you think he was doing that to himself? Because it was, it was self-destructing. I don't know if it was. I think he was conflicted. I think that he felt that with his intelligence and his talent and and his charm, because he was really charming when he wanted to be, he could have been anything. But you know, yeah, my, my thought on that, because I've, I've, I've overheard so much conversation with him just by being around him. Mm -hmm. I, I, he didn't want to, as, and I, I know this for a fact, he didn't want to be known as a criminal. Yeah. He didn't want to be known as a criminal. Right. You're smarter than that. I got more than these people. I'm not, I'm not a D's and D's guys. Yeah. And that's, that was it. And anytime you gave him a platform, he buried himself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he had a pattern. If you go back, so the novel sort of starts with this Aurelio thing. And we go back and we sort of trace his rise, his, his early days. 
And then we flash forward, he's making the decision to testify and keep over. And then and then there's an epilogue at the end. But if you if you go back and and you testify and, and you look at the way he testified in court when he was arrested for a gun, he, he was lying. You know, they said he said, oh, you know, I didn't have the gun. And the, and the cop testifies and says, I saw you throw it into the vacant lot. Right. And then he says, and Costello said, well, be lenient with me. He says, my wife is in delicate condition that, that she's, well, she wasn't, she wasn't pregnant. So he's always trying these things. He pretended not to really speak English. Um, and most fatally, he lied on his immigration papers. So um, he, he lied about, um, uh, I think he lied about where he was born. Um, and, and I think he, he lied, I, I don't quite remember, but he, and then the people who, um, who testified on his behalf when he became a naturalized citizen, uh, they had lied as well. So when the Kefauver hearings were happening. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about when he filled out to become yeah, a citizen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in his immigration papers because he came in as a kid. Yeah. So there, there were lies. On, and then when he became a naturalized citizen, he also stretched the facts. And so when after the Kefauver hearings and they, they, they convicted him, he did time. Right. So they convicted him for. Um, uh, uh, what's it called? Sort of not doing well. I forget the name of it, but basically um, not doing what Congress wanted him to do. And then they got him on his taxes. Um, but they also had him on on lying on his his immigration papers. And so uh, they tried to deport him. No, they were trying to do the same thing they did to Marcellus. Right. Right. And that they successfully did to Joe Donis. Yep. He was he was deported. So yep. he had to spend a fortune. Um, but he was he was he was cleared by the Supreme Court. So he got to to live out his life in, in the United States. Yep. Uh, but but you know, uh, Costello's uh, affinity to, to uh, talk to the press because he wanted to convey himself as a uh, as a citizen. He wanted yeah. to put the, the gangster image behind him. He sounds like a classier version of Paul Castellano, who was trying to do the same thing. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't put Paul well, in that okay. category. Uh, Paul Castellano was trying to portray himself as a legitimate businessman. Oh yeah, um, but not but Paul I, I know both these guys well. Paul Castellano, I knew Paul Castellano other than Western Beef and the, he was never politically connected like Costello. Yeah. Costello had everybody. Yeah, but I mean, he he wanted to show that he was a businessman and not a gangster. Well, yeah, but not. I mean, I, see again. To me, I, I was too close to Costello. Costello was so. I'm sure, Ron, you could attest to that. I mean, what the power this guy had in courts. Tammany Hall, forget about it. Yeah. Paul yeah. Costello couldn't even walk in Tammany Hall. <laughs> he, he, uh, he. Um, okay. Uh, 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 the appointment of the head of Tammany Hall. He controlled um, clubhouses uh, in East Harlem. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, he was an incredible amount of power. So why was he powerful, right? So the reason he was so powerful were, were two things. One was after prohibition, right, which was the, the 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 bad piece of legislation which created the mafia, right, because it, well, it made, made them, them all so, rich too. <laughs> them all incredibly wealthy. So that um, so. Um, uh, you know, uh, prohibition is over. They have all this money, and um, they used it to, to curry favor with politicians and um, with, with, with the, the Democratic Party, which con controlled um, um, New York at the time. And there were these um, reformers like LaGuardia who got rid of all the patronage, and and Dewey was governor, so there's no patronage. So. Frank Costello provided the patronage. He provided the envelopes that went to the clubhouses that, that got the people to, um, you know, to make sure that the voters got out, you know, that, that he purchased the votes with the money from prohibition. And the other thing that he had going for them was uh, the threat of violence, right? He So that he didn't, he, you know, you had to listen to the people who were talking to these, telling the Tammany people what to do because, the, you know, they would ask Costello would ask in a reasonable way, but I would imagine that in the back of their heads was the fact that there was a lot of muscle behind those requests. Sure. And, yeah. So, um, so it was, you know, it was money and it was greed. It was greed and it was fear. 
and and he used that to take control to have an enormous amount of power. In 1932, he and Lucky Luciano stayed at the Drake Hotel uh, during the, uh, the Democratic nomination when FDR was nominated for the first time. Well, what were they doing there? <laughs> they, were sharing, they were sharing. They were sharing a suite with the head of Tammany Hall. Um, so you know, um, it, it's it's an amazing. So I was astonished to, to, to discover how politically powerful he was. Um, yeah. Well, uh, the uh, name of the book is Frank Costello, a novel by Ronald Freed, uh, assuming it's available wherever books are sold. I sure hope so. There you <laughs> go. Uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on our show. It's been enlightening. Oh, it's a pleasure you. to talk thank to you. you. Yeah. It's, it's, it no, I mean, it's, you, can, you can't imagine what he means to me in my life. Uh -huh. and, you know, and uh, I, I think you nailed it. And, and I can't wait to read the book. Oh, great. That's so nice to hear. I, I, you know, let me let me know what you think. I, I, I'd love to hear. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Have a Thank nice you, Ron. Good evening. You too. And that was that. But I'll be back. Thank you for tuning no in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo or Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. My kids still can't believe I sat with a saint. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.